The scripture reading is from Revelation 1, 1 through 8. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all pe uh, peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Third the door, and I then proceed to get to this interesting explanation or talk from several people who are greeting me. They identify themselves, they're part of a church, and they just want to tell me a lot of things, really. They have a, a great explanation of how the world really is and how it ought to be and what it's going to become, all because of their insight and understanding of this book, of the book of Revelation. Um, and, and as I listened to it, it was really quite impressive. I, I admit my instinct was to slam the door and run away. Um, I resisted that and engaged in a fairly long conversation, but it was remarkable to me about how much they, how much they had read Revelation, and yet to my mind, how much they had fundamentally misunderstood it. And it, it struck me that it, it, it invites us to consider, when we hear about, hey, we're going to study Revelation, that you may be in one of two camps. There is, um, there, there is a, a, a mindset that when we respond to things like that, that, that we have kind of a, what I would call Revelation phobia. Um, we don't like to talk about it. We don't want to study. It's almost as if, you know, even Bible-believing Christians, we almost have 26 books in our New Testament. We love to study them all, except that other one. And we're not sure about that one. And every now and then we might dip our toes. But, but we, we enter it with a lot of trepidation, a lot of fear, a lot of nervousness. Because the other side of it is there's it's like what I would call revelation mania. And I think that's what I was experiencing in that conversation I was getting from those folks. But I, I, I knew one time I encountered a church that had, for the previous 30, I think 30 or 35 years, had been every Sunday night service, had been studying verse by verse, Revelation, and then when they got done with Revelation, they would take a break, and then they'd go to Daniel. And then when we got done with Daniel, they'd go back to Revelation, over and over for 35 years. You guys ready to start up that Sunday night service again? Um, but it, it's, it's this, this kind of mania, and of course you encounter it, you encounter it when folks are really into some end times book, or you find somebody that's, that's got this amazing prophecy they're revealing, that they've read Revelation, and they've encountered, they know exactly when the world is going to end, and they tell you all the details, and they're explaining how every single vision and piece of symbolism in the book is related to this politician, or this historical event, or this current event, or this is what's happening, they've got the date all solid until the date comes, and then... 
doesn't happen. They kind of maybe get quiet for a few days, and then they come back, and then they kind of reveal that all of that study of prophecy didn't make them any better at math, but now they've got a new uh, calculation, and here's another date, and they start it all over again. But against that kind of mania, and against that kind of phobia that responds to it, we've got to find some kind of middle ground. And I think that's the two, somewhere between those two extremes is what I want us to find our way forward here. Can we find a middle ground between revelation phobia and revelation mania? And the real question we ask is, what is this book about? What is revelation about? And I think that's the, the, at the heart of this, these first eight verses. If you don't have your Bibles open, get them open to those first eight verses. I want you to see a few things and what Revelation is about. And I, and I want, in these first eight verses, to kind of frame something of the tone by which I want us to approach this study as we kind of work our way through um, over the rest of the year. Revelation is about several different things, and I've got, maybe give five statements to give a sense of what Revelation is about. Revelation first, Revelation is about bringing clarity. Now that may surprise you, uh, because our Often our response to Revelation, and especially our response to a lot of talks about Revelation, is a lot of confusion. Um, but Revelation is about bringing clarity. The name says it all. Look at that very first verse. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a revelation. It reveals things. Um, and there's a purpose that right in the first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God, God gave this revelation to Jesus Christ to show his servants things. It's all about revealing. It's going to show the things. And there's even a blessing. I'm going to talk about the blessing itself later, but verse 3, there's this blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and blessed are those who keep it. Hearing and keeping. Now, that assumes something. Because what 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 revelation is there for us to do is to hear the words and follow them now that assumes that when i hear something i know what i'm supposed to do in response you get that all of this assumes clarity everything in these opening verses are about clarity um Many, many interpretations of Revelation out there see it as this kind of mystery that really kind of remains a mystery. But, but to be clear, right when you open up the book and you just take it at face value and you read it on its own terms, it's telling us that this is a kind of mystery revealed. There's a lot of folks that will leave. You know, I can remember probably the, maybe the, the, the worst um, feedback I ever got on any sermon I gave um, this, I heard about it through the grapevine. You never hear about him directly. It's always the gossip. But this guy had, had brought his son-in-law, and his son-in-law didn't want to be at church that Sunday, and he sat through the sermon, and, and, he, and he said when he got done, I heard through like three different layers, but he said when he got done, he said, I didn't understand a thing that man just said. Well, I've mission accomplished. I don't know what I was doing there. Um, it, didn't, it didn't hit him at all. A lot of folks leave Revelation like that. We kind of walk away scratching our heads. So I didn't understand a word of what we were just talking about. But that's not what the intent was. The intent is not that we walk away scratching our heads, but actually that the church walks away with our head held high, our confidence and courage built up, 
as we re-enter the world. This is a book meant to be read and in the church publicly. Everything about it is meant to be read and to be heard. And you even see that in that verse 3. This is meant to be heard in order to build up a church to strengthen and encourage. Revelation is about bringing clarity. Second idea, Revelation is about the sovereign triune God. Now that's a hand, that's a mouthful, there's a lot there. But all of it is, is there, that, that this is a revelation from God about God. This is God telling us about what God is up to in the world. But it's, it, you will see every person of the Trinity at work in Revelation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. You will see God the Father reference. You will see Jesus Christ at work. You will see the Spirit of God at work throughout this. And, and you see it here in these opening verses. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. So God the Father gives the Son a revelation that Jesus then gives to the church through his sending angel. Now, there's no a reference there that gets debated, but I will suggest, and we'll actually, I'm not going to, I'm just going to suggest it now, and we'll talk again in, later on in the fall, because it comes up again quite deeply in Revelation 22, that the reference to the angel is likely the Holy Spirit, that it's the Holy Spirit that is bringing this message to John. But that's not the clearest example here in these first eight verses. Where it is really clear is in verse 4, when John sends this letter to these seven churches, which is what Revelation is, a letter to seven churches. And he says, grace to you and peace from... Now, who's the grace and peace from? This is from God, but who, how is he describing God? From him who is and who was and who is to come. That seems like God the Father, and it's going to be pretty clear by verse 8 that that's exactly who it is. That's God the Father. Um, and from the seven spirits... Who are before the throne? Now, who are those seven spirits? Well, um, Zechariah 4, Revelation 22, there's some references there. I'm, I'm kind of wrestling. We're going to go back and forth about how deep we're going to dive into the references that exist underneath Revelation. But you can look at those references and see that what he's talking about clearly is the Holy Spirit. And I think it's obvious from the text itself because this is grace and peace from God the Father, from God the Spirit, from the seven spirits. And from Jesus Christ, the Spirit, Holy Spirit is sandwiched right in the middle between God the Father and God the Son. It is grace and peace from Jesus Christ, the faith, the witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. Every person of the Trinity is at work here, even in this introduction, and God is presented as our source of grace and peace. So in the Father, you have a, a God who is giving this revelation. God, himself, the Father, speaks in verse 8. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who was and is and is to come. All of that is God asserting His sovereignty, His kingship, his, that He is the Lord over all of history. Was, is, is to come. Everything that has happened, everything that is happening, and everything that will happen, happens under the sovereign care and control of God. That's what he's giving us here in these opening verses. This is a bold and broad assertion of God's sovereignty over all time. 
And Jesus here, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' revelation to us. He is telling us. Remember, you're going to look back in the Gospels, and Jesus will say, even I don't know the hour or the day, but that belongs to my Father in heaven. There is, there is a way in which, even within the Trinity, there are, are roles that they're playing, and God the Son has, lim- has limited His knowledge. God the Father has that knowledge. And now God is revealed, the Father is revealing it to Jesus in order, in part, to reveal it to us, to his people. But Jesus is the one who loves us. Verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This is the first example in Scripture of a doxology, which is a you know, form of praise, kind of like a, a hymn of praise given directly to Jesus, not simply to God or to God and Father and Son. This is a hymn of praise, but it is, a, again, a lofty view. God the Father, God the Son is our source of grace and peace. Um, he is coming, uh, verse 7, He is coming with the clouds, Jesus, and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced him, and all tribes on earth will wail on account of him. His imminent return is the anticipated destiny of all things. Something's coming. Something's happening. Jesus is coming. And then, of course, the Spirit is there. And it, this reference to the seven, we have two references to seven already in these first eight verses. You're going to get a lot of references to seven. What do you do with this reference to seven? You're going to hear everything seven, 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 seven. What's going on with the sevens? Well, start with the basic assumption. Anytime you hear seven in Scripture, when you hear seven, think creation. You're probably most of the time going to get your way through understanding the symbolism behind it. Seven days of creation. There is here, there are the seven spirits. The, 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 and another way to say it, that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is, is presented as a sevenfold spirit before the throne of God the Father. Now in creation, all the way back in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. It is as if the Spirit of God is the power by which God the Father is creating the world. The Father speaks through the Word, the Logos. And as He speaks the Word, the Spirit carries out that work. All members of the Trinity, if you will, are participating in creation there in the early chapters of Genesis. Here, it is the Spirit that is hovering not over all time, but over the whole of creation. The sevenfold Spirit is a reminder that the Spirit of God is present throughout creation. So God is the God of all time. He was and is and is to come, but He is also the God of all space. He is everywhere. The Spirit of God assures that God is everywhere. But He is our source here, verse 4, of our grace and peace, this triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the Son. That order is actually significant. You can think about that as a creation order, that we understand God, the, God speaking through and working through the Spirit. But God is the source of grace and peace, which is to say that this triune, sovereign God has set His eyes on His people in order to bring blessing. It's a glorious thing that the sovereign God, the God of the universe, chooses to reveal Himself to us. And that revelation, that revealing, is a source of grace 
and peace. And in response to that, he is receiving, verse 6, glory and dominion over his creation. As he blesses us, he receives glory because we see his, his, his control. We see in the midst of chaos how God is going to step in and help us understand the, that he is in charge. And as he does, he is asserting his dominion that he is powerful enough to accomplish that promised blessing. Revelation is about the sovereign triune God. Third, Revelation is about imminent things. That is, things that are coming soon. That word shows up right there in verse 1. And if there's anything that I, if I wanted to simplify uh, the concern that you will find if you study all of the countless books that are written about Revelation, if you want to see where most of them go wrong, it's that for all the brilliance and all the study, most of them simply ignore that word in the very first sentence. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. The time is near. That's what he says in verse 3. We get the sense of urgency, the sense of eminency. This is a work telling us about things that will happen soon. And here, in verse 4, maybe one of those things that we can quickly overlook, and I'm going to try to, we're actually going to slow down in the early chapters because I want you to see this. John is writing this to seven churches that are in Asia. Those are seven real churches in Asia. There's a real historic setting involving real events and real people. The book of Revelation, for all of the interpretations that have happened through these centuries, is rooted in a real place and time. And so then when we approach Revelation, we really have to approach Revelation the same way that we have to approach any book of the Bible, which is to say that if we're to understand any message here in Scripture as a message to us, we first have to understand it as a message to them which is to say that these, these letters and books and gospels and, and the narratives and all these things are written to a particular people in a particular place and time. And as we study and think about and wrestle with Scripture, one of the ways that, it, that our understanding will be illuminated is as we understand what it meant to them first. And when we understand what it meant to them first, then we can begin to understand better what it means for us. That's true here in Revelation. Revelation is written to a particular group of people, seven churches, with particular problems and particular struggles. And a lot of what we'll be talking about here in the weeks to come roots us in that place and time. <clears throat> Let's us think about what were they dealing with and what were they struggling with and what were the fears and anxieties and the challenges that these churches were facing and what did God have to say that would leave them walking away from that hearing of that book of Revelation with their heads held high, in some ways with their heads down, having been chastened, challenged, confronted. Revelation is a message first to them before it is a message to us. We need to see it as a message in history before we can hear how it speaks to us. One of the common challenges as you hear different interpretations of Revelation, if you get to the end of it and you say, you know, that's a really interesting thing you just said about how this is all related to 
modern day Israel and why we've got to vote this way and why we've got to put this person in or out of office or any of that kind of stuff. But what did that mean to that church back then? And a lot of times the answer is, well, it would, it would mean nothing, which means it's probably wrong. Probably have missed something here. Um, revelation is about imminent things, things that are coming. Fourth, Revelation is about the church. There is a lot here in Revelation to describe what the church is, who the church is, and what we are to be about. That word that shows up very on, first sentence, describes us. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave, to, gave him to show to his, translation is going to vary here, show to his servants, show to his slaves. Either one works. In fact, I wish we probably should just, in translations anymore, should just put both words and just put a little slash. Slave slash servant. Why? Because both of them communicate something that we need to hear. And uh, both of them lead us, will lead us uh, in the wrong way if we just park in that single translation. So if you're used to hearing servants when you encounter Scripture, hear slaves. And when you think about slaves, what do you think about? Is that a positive term or a negative term? Well, it's likely a negative term. We don't have a very good history in our own country with this thing about slavery. So we have a lot of negative associations with it. So we have this negative sense of, well, it's a problem of slavery. The slavery is that you're not your own person. You belong to someone else. And that offends every aspect of American notion of liberty. And a lot of the ways that we did it, it should. But the notion of slavery is that you are not your own. And so when he says this here, that, that he is showing his slaves something, he is reminding them that they don't belong to themselves. The church, we are not our own. Uh, we, we belong to God. That, that is what our baptism means, that we are, that, that we are, 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 are surrendering our right to own our own destiny, to choose our own adventure. We are surrendering that and submitting it. We are becoming slaves to Christ, as Paul would say. That we are slaves. So he's showing his slaves the things that must soon take place. Now that has these negative connotations, but they're not their own. But then John, notice the next, even in this next sentence, in the same verse, he made it known by sending his angel to his slave, John. John's the writer. Here, John the Apostle is identifying himself not as John the Apostle, John the one in charge, John the one that you, you need to listen to, the John the one with authority, but John the slave. And right in that moment, even if they're, if they're to feel denigrated by the term slave, the very next sentence, John is walking and identifying himself with them. He's joining them in that label. That's who they are. And of course, that's, now we begin to think, as soon as he says that, that term starts to get redeemed. John is a slave too, so can it be all that bad? And maybe that's where that term servant can be helpful to us. Because it also, the term doulos can be translated slave or servant. Slave, the, the term slave did not have the negative connotations in the first century that it had, has for us because of our particular ugly history with it. Uh, but that term servant communicates something too. It, the slave thing means you're not your own. The servant means that you are identified with this family. You're identified with the master. And that sense of identity seems to resonate a lot in our culture today. When we're saying we're servants, just as John is a servant, they're a servant of the king. Now that seems to be a position of honor. 
That's worthy of note. They're servants of God. That's what the church is. That's what you are. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a servant of God. You're also a slave of God. But to say that you're a servant of God, you're not your own, but you've got this significant identity. And notice, he doesn't keep in that kind of imagery for long. He also talks about these other things that define them. They are, verse 6, he's made us a kingdom. The church is, is a kingdom of God. Uh, now that seems to be a noble picture. We are, in fact, priests. We are priests to his God and Father. So we are a kingdom of priests as much as we are slaves and servants. We are not our own, but we belong to God's kingdom. And because of that, we are witnesses. Jesus Christ, verse 5, is the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead, which is to say that he's leading the charge of those who are coming alive in him. What Jesus' ministry is doing here is bringing life. He is bringing all of us to life as witnesses. We are joining him as witnesses to God's kingdom. How is that accomplished? That is accomplished through the cross of Christ. The cross is the way of the church and our path to glory. What he is doing here is inviting us to join him in the way of the cross. Verse 7 spells this out. Verse 7 really is the theme of Revelation. What is this whole thing about? Verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Now, what happens here is what happens throughout the book of Revelation, which is there's a whole lot of allusions to the Old Testament, even while it's, while it's essentially never quoted. There is no book of the New Testament that, uh, that references the Old Testament more and quotes it less. And that makes it hard. It may have to work. What is happening here in verse 7 is an allusion to both Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12. Um, both of those will be referenced a lot later. So I'm going to get into them more in future weeks when we have a little more time. But let me say real quickly, Daniel 7 is an anticipation of Revelation 13 through 20. We're going to hear a lot about Daniel 7 in the weeks to come. But there, they are anticipating the Son of Man as this vindication. There is the death and vindication of the saints in Christ. There is a Son of Man who redeems his people. Just as in Daniel, is a lot about anticipating a return from exile and a restoration of God's kingdom. In Zechariah 12, there is the sense of the cross as a fulfillment that's about to be enacted again. In both cases, real quick, I'm going to give you a real dirty overview, but Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12, in both cases, what they're doing is they are anticipating a redemption that only makes sense. It's a prophecy that only makes sense in the cross of Christ. Now, when we encounter this reference here in verse 7, what confuses us is to say, why is he going back and talking about the cross? The reason is, what will become clear, is that the cross is about to be reenacted again in the church. That the story of Revelation is the story of the glorification of Jesus through us, through the church. It's the victory that God is obtaining as he completes his ministry and mission in the life of the church. We are called to walk where Jesus walked. And as we walk where he walked, we begin to claim the victory that he has been working through the cross of Christ. That's a little foundation, 
and we're going to talk about a whole lot more in the months to come. But the Revelation is about the church, the story of Jesus' glorification in us, in the church. Fifth statement, Revelation is about our perseverance in our mission. There is both comfort and warning in the book of Revelation. You see it in verse 7 and 8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Now, wailing doesn't sound good. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. There is this warning of judgment to those who reject him. But then verse 3, there is this blessing that is coming to those who do what? Blessed is the one who reads the words. Blessed are those who hear. And blessed are those who keep. And at its simplest, I think most kind of pared down level, what the message of Revelation is calling us to do as the church is to be a people who hear and keep. Who hear the word and keep the word. And I don't know of a simpler explanation I can offer of what it is to be a disciple of Christ. What do I do now? What if I'm going to be a follower of Christ? What do I do? You hear and you keep. You hear the word every day. You're listening to the word. That's what this is about right here. We're trying to be a people who are listening to the word. That's why we devote so much of our time and worship to, the, to, the, to preaching. That was really a, the Protestant revelation was a recovery of the centrality of preaching. And it's not, it has anything to do with the personality of the person talking, but it's everything to do with the power of the Word of God. We need to be a people who are hearing the Word day in and day out. And as we hear the Word, it's not meant to just fill us with a bunch of useless facts that we can impress our neighbors with. We hear the Word so that we can keep the Word. This is what I must do in response. This is how I should live in response to the Word of God. There is a warning of judgment to those who reject him. God is sovereign over all creation. And there is a judgment that will come for all the tribes of the earth who will reject Christ. But there is comfort to those who cling to them, to those who hear the word and keep the word. He has loved us. He's freed us. And he is blessing those who hear and keep his word. There is a great assurance in the midst of that. And that will only become clear in the weeks ahead as we explore the context. There's a warning of judgment. There's comfort to those who keep and hear and keep the word. Our calling as the church is to be a people who persevere in our mission. To be the kingdom of priests. To be the witnesses to who he is and what he has done. Day in and day out in the course of our lives together. The reality of the gospel is enough for us to persevere. Um, God is strong enough. God has done a work and is doing a work even now. Christ will be glorified. My encouragement to you as we enter into the study is to recommit yourself to that basic rhythm and pattern that Revelation, the opening verses, lay out for us. Be a people who hear the word and keep the word. Prioritize hearing the word in your life. Be a people who are gathering as a people, listening and studying Be a people with our nose in the book. Let's be a people who are seeking to hear the word of God as we we support one another, as we pray for one another, as we live our life together. Hear the word and keep the word in faith.
That's what he has called us to do. And he has promised us great comfort and great joy if we will follow him there. Let's pray. God, I ask for your wisdom, for your grace, for your insight as we embark on this study together. God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear what you have for us here in the months ahead. God, I pray you will bend our hearts to you as we see your word revealed to us in the book of Revelation. God, help us to be and to become a people who are defined as your slaves, as your servants, as your witnesses, as your priests, and help us to be a people who day in and day out hear your word and keep it. In Christ's name, amen.